The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayet, was recorded at Dai Bosatsu Zendo Kangoji in the Catskill Mountains. This recording is part of a series on the Mumukan, the Gateless Gate Koan Collection. They are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zenstudies.org or www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Mumon Khan, Case 3. Gute raises a finger. Whenever Gute Osho was asked about Zen, he simply raised his finger. Once a visitor asked Gute's boy attendant, What does your master teach? The boy raised his finger. Hearing of this, Gute cut off the boy's finger with a knife. The boy, screaming with pain, began to run away. Gute called to him, and when he turned around, Gute raised his finger. The boy was suddenly enlightened. When Gute was on his deathbed, he said to his assembled monks, I obtained one finger Zen from Tenryu and have used it all my life, but still have not exhausted it. When he finished saying this, he passed away. Mumon's comment. The enlightenment of Gute and of the boy does not depend on the finger. If you understand this, Tenryu, Gute, the boy, and yourself are all run through with one skewer. Mumon's verse. Gute made a fool of old Tenryu, emancipating the boy with a single slice. Just as Kyore cleaved Mount Kasan to let the Yellow River run through. radiant glory of this afternoon outside and in. Fourth day of our Martin Luther King session. So today we meet with Gute about whom 
not much is known. We don't know his birth date or his death date. We know that he lived around the same time as Obaku. And Gute's teacher, Tenryu, was a disciple of Daibai, who in turn was a disciple of Baso. It was a very turbulent period in China at that time, and I'll read from Nyogen Senzaki's commentary on this case. He starts out, Bodhisattvas. That's how he would always address his students, Bodhisattvas. In the time of Gute, the Chinese government persecuted Buddhism, destroying 40,000 Buddhist temples and canceling the ordination status of 260,000 monks and nuns. This took place in 845 CE. The tyrannical rule lasted for 20 months. Some of you may recall when I was speaking on Umon Zenji's, everyone has his or her own light that I also mentioned this period of persecution. As a monk, Gute lost his temple home. He hid himself in a remote mountain, begging for his food secretly among the villagers. One evening, a nun came to his shelter and walked around him three times with her traveling staff without taking her hat off. It was very impolite to act that way at a monk's shelter. She made it clear that she considered him a stone image, not a living monk. Bute said, why don't you take off your hat? The nun said, if you are not a stone image, Say a word of Zen, and then I will properly pay you my respects. Gute had never attained Zen. Therefore, he could not say a word. The nun called him a stupid monk and went away. In another translation of the story by Sekida, This is the background to today's case. He was living alone at the foot of a mountain. It was a quiet twilight, a good time for meditation, and Gute had been sitting for a long time in his hut. Outside, the dry fallen leaves were stirred by the winter wind and rustled softly on the ground. The dusk gathered. A new moon shed her light a figure appeared from the dark and silently walked toward the hut. This was the nun, Jisai, dressed in the clothes of a traveling priest with a broad hat, black robe, and pilgrim staff. She entered the hut, walked around Gute's seat three times, and then standing straight in front of him, threw her staff down on the ground, saying, Say a word, then I'll take off my hat. 
Goethe was at a complete loss for words. Jisai once more walked around Goethe's seat three times and again asked her question. Three times she did this, finding that Goethe could still return no answer, she began to leave. Goethe said, It's already dark. Please stay here the night. Jisai replied, Say a word and I will stay. Gute could say nothing. And Jisai walked out into the night. So here is this nun, Jisai, and she's, we may think of her as a manifestation of a bodhisattva, come to check him out, see what his practice is, push him past his impasse. He's been sitting there quite removed from all the worldly strife down around that mountain, alone in his hermitage. But is his practice pure? Is it strong? Is it vital? Or is he a stone Buddha? She walks around him as if circumambulating a stupa. Is there anything alive in there? And challenges him. And he is at a loss. Often women appear in koans, mostly anonymous. This is unusual in fact that she, we know her name, and they test and challenge monks who may not quite be ready. There's another story that I'm sure many of you know. It was also translated by Nyogen Senzaki. There was an old woman who had been caring for a monk. He was living in his hut She would bring him food, wash his robes for him. And she did this for a period of some 20 years. One day, perhaps feeling that his vow was no longer quite what it had been or that his enthusiasm had waned, she decided to test him. And she asked her beautiful niece to help her. She said, go to the monk's hut. Sit down in his lap. Throw your arms around him. And then report to me what happens. The niece did so. And as she embraced the monk, he said, the withered tree stands 
on the barren rock. Perfectly fine as an upright precepts-keeping response, eh? However, when the old woman heard of this, she chased him away and burned down his hut. He couldn't show his zen. What do you think? How should he have responded? Just sat. Say a word. Okay, just like Gute, no response. So Gute, very embarrassed about his lack of response. Jisai, a mere nun, and he, a monk, was bested. This was very much part of his era. I'm sure that many of us have found ourselves in similar situations. We thought we knew what our lives were all about, and then some unexpected confrontation occurs. We can't figure it out. What are we supposed to do? It's a terrible dilemma. How do we proceed? Or how can we recede? We can't hide can't go forward. We're asked. Speak. We're asked. Show. And we can't. And we're just feeling abysmal. Abysmal. Very open. So in a way, this is a very good thing when this happens. Because of that abysmal feeling of failure, we're open to what comes next. And there's always something that comes next, right? So, feeling this way, Gute decided to leave the mountain hut the following day. And after making some preparations, he drifted off. It was a limbic moment, neither asleep nor awake. Maybe you have felt this in your zazen from time to time. It's not a moment that we should scorn, but rather appreciate this kind of neither this nor that 
It's a pregnant moment. In that half-asleep, half-awake state, he heard a voice. He saw an apparition. Why? How did this happen? He didn't have the usual boundary erected between ordinary reality and mystery in that limbic moment. So this apparition was a mountain deity who appeared saying, don't leave the mountain. Wait. Someone is coming to visit you. A living bodhisattva. So Gute thought, after awakening from this dream, maybe I'll just stay on a few more days in my misery, in my abject state. I don't have anything to lose. And not long afterward, Tenryu Koshu came along. You know the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So Gute told Tenryu his humiliating story with honesty and sincerity. And then he asked him, what is the essence of Buddha's teaching? In other words, I may be a Buddhist monk, but I admit I am completely at a loss. I thought I knew something of Buddhism, but staying on this mountain as a Buddhist hermit, living this solitary, peaceful life, I realize now I've been fooling myself. Self-deception. Of course, as we know, Gute was running away to begin with. That's how he ended up there, right? Running away from strife, trying to find a nice, safe place. How about us? Are we sitting here looking for a nice, safe place? Just plumped down on the cushion? Or is our zazen vivid? Is it bright? Are we fooling ourselves? Are we, are we hiding from the truth of our lives? Or is our vow strong? Our determination powerful? Unwavering? 
Well, Tenryu heard this story. And as soon as Gute finished speaking, Tenryu raised his finger. And at that, Gute understood the essence of Buddha's teaching. Not a word. No encouragement, no cajoling. Just raised finger silently. Silence itself, or Hakuin's sound of one hand, or Basui's, what is this? And of course, Joshu's. Each in his own unique way. Responding. To this. With complete intimacy. And at Gute's realization of this one finger Zen, his realization and Tenryu's were one. Tenryu's one finger and Gute's one finger, same. Then Gute left the mountain and eventually found a temple of his own. And among his monks was a young boy who was his attendant. And that brings us to today's case. It seems that this boy, whenever he was asked by someone about something, would hold up one finger in imitation of his teacher. And someone went to Gute and told him about it. said, Master, that boy also understands the Buddha Dharma. Whenever someone asks him something, he holds up his finger, just like the master. Hearing this, Gute concealed the knife in his sleeve. And this translation is by Andy Ferguson. He asked the boy, I heard you understand the essential doctrine. Is that so? 
The boy said, Yes. Gute then asked him, What is Buddha? The boy held up his finger. Gute grabbed the boy's finger and cut it off with his knife. The boy screamed and ran for the door. As the boy ran away, Gute yelled at him. When the boy turned his head, Gute What is Buddha? The boy held up his hand, but his finger was gone. There was nothing there. At that, he was awakened. Gute, of course, when he received this authentic one-finger Zen, it was through his realization when Tenryu raised his finger. Certainly not about finger, but about the realization of this matter, which was so vividly presented and transmitted at that moment in that hut. Certainly a big difference between showing Zen and being a show-off the way the boy was. So I'm going to read another section from Yogin Senzaki about that. An imitation of the teaching seems at first rather innocent, but if it is not nipped in the bud, it will grow into the ugly weed of religious complacency or into the troublesome weed of hypocrisy. To open the gate of realization, one must block off one's road of conceptualization. Gute sees the boy cut off his finger. The boy cried and began to run away. It was too sudden for the boy to think of anything. There was only the pain. At that moment, Gute called for the boy to stop. The boy turned his head toward Gute, and the master raised his finger. That, his road of thinking blocked, the boy could be enlightened. So you see different ways of describing that moment. The boy raising his fingerless finger or Gute raising his finger as the boy was running away, screaming. Either way, awakening took place. Showing off is certainly something we want to avoid in our practice. And I think sometimes we don't realize that we're trying to look good. And that is a way of showing off when we really should just be natural. Just let it be. Just be exposed. But 
I was thinking about a story that took place uh, quite a while ago here. It was in um, September of 1998, and it was the third day of session. It was a surprisingly warm September. And so I'm going to read you something that I wrote down in my journal. There was a woman who had come, I think, for about a month. She was a professor somewhere, some college in the New York City area, quite intellectual. She tried to engage everybody that she would encounter in some conversation, some metaphysical conversation about Buddhism before session started. And she was very frustrated because, of course, during session, she couldn't engage anyone. So anyway, it was the third day and a very warm day after supper. And I decided to take a quick swim in Beecher Lake. The sun had come out and warmed up the air. But the water, marvelously cold. While swimming in the golden evening light, so beautifully peaceful. A few geese, of course, but silent. Just the sound of little ripples floating there around me. When all of a sudden, some guy in the woods began bellowing, Lah! Lah! No, no, show me more. No, show me more. No, show me more. And along came this woman down the path. And she was dressed in kind of a garden party Hamptons outfit. Large sunglasses, big, broad hat. A flowing caftan-like thing and shawl and very, looked like very, maybe, you know, Abercrombie boots, uh, lovely staff. So she was walking down the trail. And I wrote down in my journal here, and this lady, who seems to be somewhat less than sane, <laughs> always doing some inappropriate thing, she starts slowing down, looking, oh, yeah, some inappropriate thing in the zendo, slowing down during kinhin, looking around, or sitting on her cushion at a 45-degree angle during chanting, and wiggling from side to side, and weaving back and forth when we're walking, and mumbling under her breath, etc., well, here she comes walking around the lake in this amazing get-up with her straw bonnet walking stick and orange sunglasses. And this guy is going, Show me more! And she says quite loudly as she approaches, I don't think so. <laughs> referring to Mr. Moo. 
Then she sees me and she says, Sensei, is that the Buddha nature? I say, I don't think so. <laughs> She says, I didn't think so, and continues walking. And he continues shouting. And as she gets around the lake, I hear her say, I'll show you, Moo. But I never got to see that doksan between the two of them. <laughs> so this boy attendant with his finger cut, this cutting, cutting pain. Many stories we have in Zen about surprise pain and then Awakening. Hakuin, Hakuin Zenji doing takuhatsu in misery, not able to penetrate his koan, totally immersed. And outside some villager's house, being shooed away by someone who comes out and hits him with a broom, knocks him down. He loses consciousness and then comes to life. Awake. Gensha, who stubbed his toe and awakened. Or Umon, whose foot was broken when he tried to keep Bokshu from slamming the door and keeping him out of Doksan. Now this is very important. It's not that We are supposed to seek out some painful situation, okay? Oh, I think I'll put myself in pain so that I can get enlightened. No. As we know, we have sufficient pain. And we're still not enlightened. What's wrong? We certainly aren't doing Zen practice as self-mutilation, even if it sometimes feels that way. And certainly self-cutting or self-starving is simply the height of delusion. It has nothing to do with awakening. As Shakyamuni Buddha found out, the middle way is best for our practice. Neither the indulgence of his early life as a prince nor the extreme asceticism when he had begun his spiritual quest. So what is being cut? Nansen kills the cat. Gute cuts the boy's finger. What is being cut through? Again, 
Remember Hakuin's command. Cut your life root at the source. Cut all your attachments. Cut all your old patterns of behavior, habits, imitative acts that have nothing to do with your true self. This is one finger Zen. What was the difference between Gute's holding up his finger and the attendants? For Gute, it had nothing to do with the finger. For the attendant, it was all about the finger. He could only see the outward sign and, of course, mistook the finger for the moon it was pointing to. If we try to copy dead, lifeless, if we try to imitate the form I never penetrate to the source. When we get the form, when it becomes a part of our body after doing it over and over again, then it's quite a different matter. And of course, at the beginning, all we can do is follow, try our best to get it right. But that's not the same as imitating. So this cutting of the finger, that one cut, that cut to diluted consciousness, two into one, When Gute was on his deathbed, he said to his assembled monks, I obtained one finger Zen from Tenryu and have used it all my life, but still have not exhausted it. We can never exhaust this treasure that is our very own, no matter how we come to it. When he finished saying this, he passed away. So peaceful, so grateful, And who died? What died? Mumo.
Enlightenment's Comment The enlightenment of Gute and of the boy does not depend on the finger. Of course, it is not the finger being raised. It's the entire universe. Straight up. If you understand this, Mumon says, Tenryu, Gute, the boy, and yourself are all run through with one skewer. All run through with one. All delusions of separated individuality, discursive intellect, all pierced through. Just this one finger Zen rises up from the center of the earth through the heavens. Mumon's verse. Gute made a fool of old Tenryu emancipating the boy with a single slice, just as Kyore cleaved Mount Kasan to let the Yellow River run through. Made a fool of his old teacher. He bested his old teacher. He took his one-finger Zen and activated, emancipated, Emancipating the boy with a single slice. We may think, that's very cruel. That's very brutal. Here in America, he'd be sued. But what compassion. A single slice cut two into one. This is the activity of our Zen mind. To cut through delusion. True compassion. Kyore cleaved a mountain to let the river run through. This is Gute's great earth-shaking, earth-cleaving activity, awakened activity, awakening activity of mind. Nyogen Senzaki on Mumon's verse. 
A Chinese myth tells us that the Yellow River at first could not run toward the east, as there was a great mountain in the way. A god came to help and divided the mountain into two parts. This was Kyore. So that the water could run through. If you look carefully at those two mountains, you will find the fingerprints of this god. Then Senzaki says, Such a story. Zen never asks us to believe in miracles. But we Zen students perform miracles without knowing it ourselves. Didn't I give you a koan for this session? After you have entered into the house, then let the house enter into you. Now, show me how you accomplish it. Those who are still working on this koan, have a cup of tea and go home. You will sleep soundly tonight. <laughs>